and, and you know, you're right. There is a huge vacuum. And I think um, there's a lot of demand. So I, I think we've seen this in, in the U.S., like with representation in the arts and films and literature. And there's so much hunger from like from publishers for like diverse content. Sometimes that diversity is just very like skin deep. It doesn't, it's, it's like you have all like the same like Western values and culture and everything, but you just have people of different um, you know, biological backgrounds, which isn't the same thing. But there are people from other communities like who are really actively pushing for this because representation like does matter. And I didn't realize how much it matters until I started seeing more like movies and shows where you have like minorities, like as lead roles, or you can have like a woman being like the, the lead role. And I was like, wow, that's really powerful and shaping how we think about ourselves. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhag Shukla speaks with Aditi Banerjee. Aditi is a book author, essayist, and attorney whose first novel, The Curse of Gandhari, gives a perspective on the Mahabharata from the unique viewpoint of one of the matriarchs of the Hindu epic. Hope you enjoy it. Aditi Banerjee is a practicing attorney at a Fortune 500 financial services company. She is currently an executive MBA student at Columbia University. She co-edited the book, Invading the Sacred, an analysis of Hinduism studies in America. She has published several essays on Hinduism and the Hindu-American experience in publications like the Columbia Documentary History of Religion in America since 1945 and Buddhist Hindus and Sikhs in America, a short story. She earned her Juris Doctor at Yale Law School and received a BA in International Relations from Tufts University. In her free time, she enjoys wandering the Himalayas and watching Chinese movies that have been influenced by Buddhist and Taoist ideas. I've known Aditi since the early 2000s from her time as one of the early volunteers of the Hindu American Foundation. Today, we're going to talk about her first novel, The Curse of Gandhari which gives readers a peek into the Mahabharata from a very unique and different vantage, that being from the blindfolded eyes of one of the many fierce matriarchs from the sacred text. So welcome, Aditi. Thank you so much. It's wonderful being here with you, Suhag. So first and foremost, amazing. I enjoyed every single page. I've read several books in this genre. Um, I'm not sure what to call it. Maybe modern retellings of Puranic lore and Itihas, you know, from Amish Tripathi's Shiva trilogy to Chitra Banerjee Devkaruni's Palace of Illusions. This genre that kind of brings ancient and very complex and complicated figures to life in modern parlance. And I have to say that your book is now one of my favorites. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. So first, I want to actually start at the beginning. Um, Could you share with our audience your first introduction to the Mahabharata generally? And for those in our audience who may not be familiar, maybe some background on the sacred text um, would be helpful for them. Sure. Um, So the Mahabharata is um, India's grand epic. Um, It's 
it's the longest text in like world world history. I forget the exact number, but multiple times of the the Odyssey and and, and the Iliad, um, and it is um, what we refer to as a Panchama Veda or the fifth Veda. And I think that's an important classification because what the Mahabharata really does is it takes all this wisdom from the Upanishads and the Vedas and all this philosophy, mm-hmm. and it says, how do we make this more relatable? And it taps into um, this essence of human nature, which is we connect to things through storytelling. Mm-hmm. And through stories, um, we are able to understand this worldview of dharma, what dharma means in action and practical terms. We relate to the characters of the Mahabharata. We have our, our favorites. And that's why I think it's been so foundational in shaping in the civilization, culture, all arts and literature. Like, as you were saying, even today, we're doing these modern retellings. And and the reason for that is because there's something universal in there that we still find so compelling and and fascinating. Um, So for me personally, I was introduced to the Mahabharata um, as a a child watching um, the, uh, the TV serial, that, you know, and this was such a big phenomenon in, in India where traffic would stop and the train schedules were all right. to actually watch this on TV. And it was such a momentous thing. Um, so I loved that. I read there were some summarized versions I would read, but they were like, you know, by um, R.K. Narayan or uh, Rajagopalachari and, and, and others. And I, I just had this thirst for delving into it and reading the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for uh, someone who reads in English, it wasn't really widely accessible or available until um, there was a translation by Bibet Tebroy and, and some others that have come out more recently, which makes the text more available to, to all of us. Right, right. No, and, you know, in terms of the eternal nature of some of the conflicts that these figures face. I know that um, I taught uh, eighth grade Balvihar for a long time. And part of our curriculum was taking the, the 10 do's and don'ts that Bhishma narrates as he's on the bed of arrows. And it was so great to see these young kids take examples from their daily life or even we would look at pop culture like, okay, out of these 10 do's and don'ts, let's look at someone who's famous. Let's look at someone who's infamous. Mm -hmm. And you could see that those who were famous for positive things were largely following um, those rules. Um, And those who weren't, you could see where they were falling short. So, um, you know, it, it is a text that you can kind of keep getting something from every single time you visit it. Similar, similar to the Gita too. So, you know, there's so many fascinating characters in the Mahabharata. You have Bhishma with his stoicism and unrelenting commitment to this vow of never getting married or Karna with his insecurity surrounding his background and then overcompensating with this kind of self-sacrificial nature to the point of self-harm. And then there's the matriarchs, Kunti, And, you know, what's it like to have God's father, your children, (laughs) uh, Draupadi and her unique experience? How do you handle five husbands? And um, she's such a pivotal, pivotal character in the events leading up to the Great War. So why Gandhari? Yes. So it's been an interesting journey for me. So. 
as a child, when I first read her story, I just thought it was so romantic. Mm-hmm. This idea of a woman who knows she's going to be married off to a blind prince and she immediately blindfolds herself. And I was like, wow, that's so that's so noble. That's so devotional. That's like so is like so romantic. And I, and so that that stayed with me for a number of years. And then as I got older, and I think this is the other part of the, the Mahabharata is as you come back to it, you keep finding new, new things in it. Um, and so as I got older, that, that became more complicated. And it was like, well, was it really an act of sacrifice and devotion or was she, was an act of rebellion that she, mm-hmm. she was found herself in a situation she didn't want to be in and she was almost martyring herself or, or being defiant. Um, and then if you just think about for someone who's not only, uh, say so your wife to a blind man, so mm-hmm. is it better for you to keep your eyes open and have your full senses so you can uh, be there for, for both herself and her husband? Uh, mm-hmm. And then also being the queen in a, in a very... Uh, fraught kingdom where there's a lot of, you know, tensions, there's a lot happening. Um, as a queen, does she have her duty to to preserve her her senses and our, all her capabilities to discharge her, her dharma? Um, and then what was interesting is I just kept seeing very black and white reactions to her. So either yeah. she was, oh, like this devoted, self-sacrificing wife, and that's like wonderful, or she was just this bitter, rebellious, um, you know, foolish woman who Mm -hmm. blindfolded herself and metaphorically became blind. And because of her, her 100 sons became like this. And therefore, in a way, she was culpable for the for the war. And I think when I first started writing the story, I had in my mind this kind of moralizing lesson that, oh, like at the end of the book, she has to realize that she made this mistake and things like that. And then as I wrote, I was like, that's not really the point. And I think so much of the discussion about Gandhari becomes about her blindfold Mm -hmm. and she becomes reduced to that one thing. Whereas if you think of someone like Pishma, to your point, he was someone also who made this vow that he probably shouldn't have made as the crown prince, again, of this kingdom. And he insists on keeping the vow, even though it creates all of the problems that actually lead to the Great War. Um, And yet we have this very nuanced view of Pishma, and rightfully so. He's a revered warrior, a great teacher, a teacher of Dharma, um, even though we know that this vow was not the best decision necessarily to make. So we have this nuance and this balanced view of him. When it comes to Gantari, and I think for women generally, it's a very much more a good versus bad and much more judgmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was something that came out to me as I, was, as I was writing this. And ultimately, I wanted to be an exploration of her, of her story without judgment. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people ask me, like, why would you write about someone who's not a heroine? You know, she's not she's not like Kunti. She's not like Draupadi. Um, and oh, are you trying to make her into heroine? I said, you know, like a, a person doesn't have to be good or bad, but you can still relate to them. You can still understand things even from their failings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of what I wanted to to, to explore. Well, I have some more questions about about good and bad, but I'll get to those later. I have a few questions about kind of process and and preparation more so than we'll talk about process. But, you know, so many of us grow up with the stories of the Mahabharata. Um, I 
heard stories from my grandmother. Um, I read a lot of Amar Chitrakathas, um, and I know a lot of us, um, not just born and raised in the United States, but a whole generation. Um, that was kind of our first introduction. You mentioned the television series, and then there's always dance and dramas, and, and of course, at the feet of gurus. So what type of additional study did you have to engage in to prepare for writing the Kurzhari? Um, just in terms of wrapping your head around the story, the various characters. I mean, I've seen some books that actually have a family tree because it's so <laughs> complex. You're also bringing like past lifetimes in um, into relations that are existing in in the confines of the actual war and and the conflicts that lead up to it and even the aftermath. So what what did you do and or did you have to do more? Or did you feel comfortable with what you had? So my my main source was um what's become known as like the the critical edition of the Mahabharata mm-hmm. um that was translated by by Vivek Debray. Um, and that was like my main textual source. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there are two kinds of research. One is you know, getting the family tree right, getting the sequence and chronology right, um, th- things like that, or just what was the setting like, like a historical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, to be frank, that to me was less important than the bigger question that I struggled with in this story and with, with all of my fictional writings, which is how do you... Um, how do you maintain like the reverence for Mahaprabhu? It's like a sacred text for, yes. not, for me and for, and for others. And it almost feels like, and, and, and also um, maintaining the ethos of that and being true to the spirit of that, while also knowing that when you're writing something 5,000 years later, it's impossible to put yourself in the shoes of Gandhari as she would have been, you know, like 5,000 years right. ago. <laughs> so, um, and that to me was the most important thing that I think there is, there's something universal, um, in these, in these stories and to try to tap into, into that, into that, which we can still relate to today versus getting everything else, um, you know, perfect in terms of like the facts and like, and, and the other things. Um, and, also, the other part, like for, for me, I think um, sometimes you can have a retelling when you think, oh, there's something new to say or something new to show. And honestly, I don't, I don't feel that because when you read the Mahabharata, um, Veda Vasa, he's just an amazing poet and he has so much sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times people say, I was like, we have like feminist retellings. And I actually don't think you need feminist retellings because if you read the way he depicts these female characters, there's so much sensitivity mm-hmm. and understanding and acknowledgement of like the Shakti and the power within women and also the difficult situations in which they find themselves. Like I think it's a very moving when you have the passage where um, Satyavati is ferrying the boat for um, uh, Parshar Muni yeah. and uh, he basically wants to have um an affair with her in, in, in that moment. Right. And you can, in, when you read the text, you can understand like the situation she was in and also how she keeps her wits about her. Um, and that kind of depth of sensitivity 
um, by, by Veda Vasa. It's, it's, it's amazing. So for me, it's more like a fan fiction almost that like, I'm so addicted to this world of the Mahabharata and to some of these characters. I just want to explore it further because, um, but to do it without distorting, um, the, the ethos and the, like the worldview and, and the principles and values embedded in the Mahabharata and the Puranas as, as really the Panchama Veda. So preserving that aspect of it, the best What I what I really appreciated is the way that you have woven in these concepts about uh, dharma and karma. And so all of a sudden you're reading a story and I was like, oh, there's some philosophy right there that just came out. You did a really nice job of that. And I had highlighted some lines, but I also want people to go and read the book. So, um, you know, you mentioned the sacred nature of these texts. And so how how did you decide where you might take liberties or or let your imagination be freer um which is necessary because you're giving voice to gandhari and her inner thoughts which we don't necessarily um get to see and bringing to life that vantage point um can you think of an example where maybe you struggled and said well no i think i can still go in this direction and uh in a state of reverence Yes. So one thing I tried very hard to do was um, make sure I did not contradict anything or revise anything that was in the actual Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that's helpful is there's there are actually very few lines um, devoted to any character. And it's, again, like an amazing part about the the poetry of Veda Vasa is with such few lines and he never says, Oh, this person was thinking this or feeling this, mm-hmm. but just through the action through one line, you can imagine so much. Yep. Mm-hmm. So my starting point was not to, to contradict that, but then just to imagine based on those lines, having this sketch of the, the personality of, of Gandhari and then imagining what she may have or what it may have been like. So for example, in the beginning of the story, she's in her, in the kingdom into which she was born in, in Gandhara. And I imagined like what her, her father was like. So Subala, like that name is there and he's evidently like a very good king or you got the sense that he was, he was a good king. So then I imagined um, what, what that relationship may have been like with, uh, with her and her father, with her mother, um, what the kingdom of Gandhara may have looked like at that time, what it may have felt like, um, the relationship between that and, and, and Hastinapur. And so that was kind of creative mm-hmm. license or, or imagination um, that I allowed myself without deviating from what was actually in the, in, in, in the text. Right, right. So I want to shift a little bit to the actual um, writing process, although we, we've probably already kind of um, entered into that. But some of your descriptions are so vivid, like the, the grease and soot that might coat the walls of a room in a palace that have had hovens or fire rituals ongoing for you know hours on end, for years on end, um, or the color that um, Gandhari's ma- mother selects in her sari when Bhishma comes and, and the subliminal message that she wants to send or the shells that are in her hair ornament for a princess who comes from a kingdom that isn't as wealthy um, as, as as others might be. So how do you, and I've read some books where it, it gets so detailed that it almost becomes a burden 
but I, I feel like you, you really struck the right balance. Um, is that an active uh, exercise in doing that? Are you erasing when you're like, oh, it's a little bit too much? Or is, you know, what's that process? What's the, how do you get that balance between too much and just enough? Yeah, that's that, that's something I think all writers struggle with like forever. <laughs> so um, what was interesting for me in, in writing this story, and that hasn't always been in the case of some other stories I'm working on now, is that um, part of it is just like slipping into the consciousness of Gandhari or the character whose point of view you're, you're writing from, um, and then just trying to imagine being in that scene and that setting uh, what she's seeing, what she's noticing, and putting herself into that into that subject. And and the interesting thing is, she's someone I've like admired or I've I've thought about for so long that when I was actually writing it, I just felt very like very close to her. And and like I every time I start, I would always start my writing sessions with like I just want this to to like properly honor and be true to the spirit of this this, this woman. Um, and so I think um, what I've always heard about like research and, and writing, which I think is good is you never want someone to think, oh, this is a really well-researched scene because then you've taken them away from the story and like you're just impressing mm -hmm. with details on, on research or things like that. So having just enough description where you can like evoke um, a, a scene and sometimes it's just like one detail because the reader is also involved and in actively participating in the story. So if you right. have one... Um, like if I say there were like fallen leaves on the sidewalk, you can just imagine an autumn scene and I don't have to describe every other detail. Right. So trying to find that one or two details, that'll be enough to just like evoke the, the ambiance and the scene and the setting and, and the feelings of, of that. So, um, so that was it. And the other part is like really slowing down. So I've actually started writing by hand. Like oh. I handwrite my drafts. And the reason I like that is because I type very fast, but when I'm typing fast, I'm just thinking, oh, I want to get to the next scene where this happens. And when I write by hand, I have like slow down and really imagine myself in that setting. So I, I try to do that too, to really like feel like I'm, I'm there because what you really want to do as a writer is produce a, a an experience in the reader. So mm -hmm. you can't do that unless you're experiencing it yourself. It, it's like Ganpati, right? <laughs> when he has to, uh, the, the condition is uh, that as he's writing, he has to understand what he's fighting to give him yeah. just the time to take a breath <laughs> and right. move on. But um, th that's, that's, a, that's an important thing that I, I think we take for granted. It, it's funny, nowadays, the only time I'm writing by hand, although I have kept a practice of my weekly to-do list to write that by hand, but it's when I'm signing a check, which even that is so few and far between because you would just send something by PayPal or Venmo. So that's really interesting. Um, let me ask you this. So the story is set with Gandhari learning that she has only one day left to live. And this spurs on kind of this wave of nostalgia and regret and reliving emotions. So from that, from one scene to the next or one chapter to the next, we're, we're on that last day and then it weaves back um, to, you know, weeks or months or, or even years passing by. Um, 
and then you come back to that day. What was the idea behind that? And how difficult does that make the writing process? Because you're spanning different times. And uh, so do you just focus on kind of the, the day and then the past and then weave it together? Or are you just going back and forth? It was really interesting because I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but then later on it, it came together for me. So I started writing this when I was taking some creative writing classes a few years ago. Um, and the reason I was taking creative writing classes was because my father had passed away from mm. like this long drawn terminal illness. And I was just in this place where it was like that, that year or two after where it's just like a lot of grief. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to do like, I'd stopped taking the yoga classes I used to take. I'd stopped going out. And the one thing I felt like doing was, was writing. Mm. Uh, and I think for me, it was this whole idea because I saw this with my, my father who um, like in his last days, he kept thinking about things in his past and right. like very small things that were just like, you know, that, that would just like haunt him or that he was like, he was thinking about like, Oh, like I had this, this, this thing happen. And like, I, and he wanted to share that with my, my brother and myself. Um, and just this idea of at the end of being at the end of one's life and like looking back um, and all of that, I think that was very much with me. And there's so many times, you know, we have like, you know, sick parents or elders, but we very rarely talk about death. And my father and I were very close and we sometimes talked about it, but we didn't talk about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think as I was like dealing with all of my feelings, I was thinking about death and letting go and, and all of this. And at the same time, there was this character of Gandhari who I was fascinated with for so long and then thinking about her and losing, you know, like all 100 of your, of your sons and like being in this forest and, you know, for a few years and just knowing that she would have approached the end, like what, what, what could have gone on in her head. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the, part of the search there was like, even after you've had a life of so many mistakes or so much regret, can you still find some kind of um, peace or resolution to it at the, at the end of that? So I think that was kind of like this journey that I went on. And I think it was very much connected with uh, dealing with the loss of my father, even though like I didn't realize it at the time. Right. But looking back, I think those two things had had very much come come together. And I, you know, it it's so it's so human the way that you've brought in kind of the questions and even even at death's door, she's still annoyed with Kunti. So you know that these are all there's no, there wasn't a deification, um, so to speak of her, which, which I appreciated. Um, and it, it really set the tone for, I mean, there's a consistency in her character, but there's also an evolution in her character that I think you really drew out. Um, you know, one of the most powerful qualities I feel of our Hindu sacred texts, and especially the Mahabharata, um, is the complexity of so many key figures. Um, the good guys have deep and serious flaws and the quote unquote bad guys have positive attributes that we should aspire to imbibe. And you've done 
like I said, an exquisite job of bringing out this humanity out of um, Gandhari. So was there a formula or tabulation that you had to kind of keep track of in the process to make sure you didn't inadvertently tip the balance towards the reader coming to the conclusion, oh yeah, she's evil, she's adharmic, man, life wasted. Or did you channel your own inner struggles in various situations where we kind of have a deva sort of conversation going on that's battling as we struggle to decide on our next action? How do you ensure maintaining complexity? I, I think so much of that was already in her character to begin with. And it was just revealing that or letting it speak for itself. I did come to this point, I think when I was like about two thirds of the way through. Um, and I, I was trying to figure out how to, how to end this. Um, and part of it was this idea of, oh, she's going to like learn her her lesson and then she's going to somehow like change or, or something or, or she would have, you know, so something drastic like that. Um, and I remember I was actually having a conversation with my, uh, with my guru and he, he had come from, from India. He was visiting for a few days and I, I mentioned him, I was, I was writing this and he, he just said like one line, but that line really stuck with me. He said, you know, Gandhari is very difficult to write about, she was someone that, you know, Sri Krishna respected very much. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like, that was like the moment for me that something clicked. And I'm like, yes, he did respect her. And, you know, there's that, that moment, like after the war, when she, she curses him and he accepts the curse with a smile and, and he calls out her flaws, but he still respects her. And, and that idea of, not having to like deify or vilify someone, but just she can just exist on her own and she's worthy of respect. I think that really helps me um, keep that perspective where it shouldn't be either extreme, but that complexity and the subtlety and the nuance of a character can just can just stay and she doesn't have to become either, you know, totally redeemed or like a, or a tragic, you know, like villainess or something else, but just something... Um, in between, like you said, like keep true to herself, but hopefully evolve and and grow even in her her last days. Right, right. So, who was the target audience you had in mind when you wrote this, and and what's the reception been? Uh, I, I know it was released, I believe, in India first. I picked up my copy in India, and I don't know if if is it available on Amazon now here um, and you know, has there been a difference in, in the reception, say, between India and any other of the diasporas? Yeah, so it, it has been um, published in, in India. It's available like on Amazon here, but basically it's like shipped through, mm-hmm. uh, shipped from, from India or, or on Kindle. Um, so when I wrote it, I honestly, I, I didn't even think it was going to be a novel in the beginning. It's something, like I said, I wrote it as like a creative writing class exercise. Um, and then I guess when I wrote it, I did think of an audience that may be familiar with the Mahapartha or mm-hmm. knows it's there, but hasn't read it. And, and my hope was reading something like this would make them want to read it or, or just, you know, dive into the, the Mahapartha and like the Puranas more generally, just more that, that was kind of my, my goal. Um, but one of the things that I've 
that was like a pleasant surprise to me is um, I was working with a, a writing teacher on this and she was someone in the US, no connection to India, had never heard of the Mahabharata before. Um, and as she was reading it, she really related to it and she like loved the characters. She loves what like, like about Dharma and, and learning this. And she was telling me like the scene where uh, Gandhari gives birth um mm-hmm. when she was reading it she was remembering like a very difficult pregnancy that she had gone through um and one of the lessons for me there was i think sometimes we underestimate how powerful these sacred stories are they yeah. don't just speak to someone of indian origin or someone who's like a professing hindu there they truly are universal um and so i think Going forward, I I I don't want to limit myself in that way because I think um you know the you do have to think about like you know is it some target audience but also just not restricting it to that and and not so much for for writing but I think like the work that that we do and that that you do like you know for like for Hindu activism and why does it matter it's not just a benefit to Hindus but you really believe right. it's like loka sangraha it's it's like it's for the upliftment of all sentient beings. And I think sometimes we shy away from that, but really being open to sharing the wealth of our traditions with, with everyone because, because it does connect to so many people. So that, that was like a learning for me, not just about writing, but just on how I think about dharma and our traditions and being more open about them. Yeah. No, that, that reminds me, uh, you know, Asim, uh, my husband, he does a, annual medical um, surgical camp in India. And he there's physicians that travel from the United States that are part of his team. And then there's others that come from around the world to see these complex surgeries. And one of the things he always does, it's in Ahmedabad, um, in Gujarat. And one of the things that they always carve time out for is going to Akshardham, which is the uh, BAPS Swaminarayan Temple. And there they have this wonderful water and light show. And it's the story of Nachiketa. And, you know, here is this story um, from from the Upanishads about this young boy uh, delving into a topic as heavy as death and talking to Yama, the, the Lord of death. And it's amazing how much people who are completely outside uh, of the, the Hindu context or um, it's their first exposure and how much they're able to take away from it. And it, it you know, provokes very deep questions. Uh, so uh, I, I totally agree with you in terms of, of the power of these um, universal teachings and, and really what our sacred texts really capture the human experience, right? And, and that's what makes it, makes it universal. Um, so let me ask you now, and we were, we're coming to 40 minutes. So, um, before I let you go, um, what's next, what are you handwriting in these days? (laughs) There's, um, there's one project that, uh, it's actually, it's been accepted for publication. So that's going to be a story about Shiva and Sati. 
Yes. Um, and the way this actually came about is, so I, I got um, married at the end of 2019. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and my husband and I, we, we got married in this temple in the in the Himalayas. Um, it's called Kriyuginayan. And it's actually the, the mandir where Shiva and Parvati were married. Wow. And uh, yeah, and the, the fire from their yagya still burns today. Um, and so it's this exceptionally powerful temple. It's, it's tiny. It's in these like beautiful, like pine forested, like mountains. It's about three hours from, uh, from Kedarnath. Um, and I had been there once like years ago and I'd always thought if I ever got married, like I'd love to get married there, but I didn't really think it would happen, but it did, it did happen. Um, and we were able to do that. And it was such an amazing experience. And as part of that, um, you know, for like a year or so before that, I was doing like the Somvar Vrata for, mm-hmm. for Shiva. And there's just so much from that, so much inspiration um, from Shiva and, and Parvati and, and just their, you know, their relationship. And it's not that, you know, it's not that we can aspire to that level, but I think there's so much you can take from their relationship and their complementarity they're also independent um and the, the reason why i think still so many of us still worship them for for like our own relationships because there's so much beauty and inspiration in that and so i just felt moved to kind of like write this story really about their about their love story so from shivans and, and sati to shivan parvati and then you know they have like this family so this is something i wanted to write is a bit is a bit lighter, but just, um, so I wanted to, to write that and that was kind of, uh, yeah, so that, that's how, that's how that one you came. romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to get the name of that temple because Asim and I just celebrated 25 years, um, in 2020, but okay. COVID kept us from being able to do anything. So maybe that's the right place for us to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that you said maybe you had some projects, so that's one of them. Yes. The one I'm working on now is it's very different. It's actually a contemporary story. Hmm. Um, so it's about an Indian American woman. Um, and the story is about, um, her relationship with her, her family and also with, uh, with, with Krishna. So, um, the, the, the story is that when she's a young teenager, her mother passes away in a car accident. Hmm. And like the last thing her mother says is like a prayer to, to Sri Krishna to protect her daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of sends her in this journey where she develops like this, um, this relationship with, with Krishna and she's kind of able to transport to the world of, of Raj and things like that as a, as a child. Oh. Um, but then, you know, she, she has to, to leave that to kind of come back to the real world. And now like 10 years later, um, she's dealing with, you know, kind of like her career. She's like her, her first love, like her, her father is sick. And then it's about like this, all of this, um, like the world here and like in, in the U S but then she also has this, this yearning or this connection for, for Krishna and how she deals with, with all of this. So it's about kind of family. It's about, you know, her finding herself and who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think kind of like just like the diaspora ex- experience and being, yeah. being here and, and, and things like that. So it's a very different type of story to write. It's been, 
very difficult to write. And at the beginning, I thought, you know, maybe this is something no one will want to read, but it's, it's actually been something like important to me. So I'm enjoying the process of, of writing it out because I think, um, I think as, uh, as, as Hindu Americans, you know, I think we have to also kind of look forward as well as, as backward. Yeah. And so how, how does Hinduism, how do our devas, like how do they remain a part of our lives as we're also American as, as we look forward generations and things like that. So I, I wanted to kind of explore that too. Well, I, I would maybe disagree just to the extent that I think there are a lot of people who are going to want to read that uh, <laughs> in, in term, because, you know, while there are Indian authors, what has frustrated me is that you pick up the book and you think, okay, maybe we'll get kind of the complexity and the nuances that are so um, inherent to our culture and our tradition, to any culture and tradition. And you open it up and it's like page two and there's the first stereotype slapping you in the face saying, nope, not this time. And so to be able to uh, have access, I think, to someone who's writing from a place that's grounded in the tradition, but who's also, I think, honest with uh, the places that we can not so much from from the tradition from the tradition itself, but just because of the human experience where we have aired, where we can turn back to the tradition yes. as inspiration to be better. Right. Um, I, I think there's going to be a huge, huge demand for that. There is. And, and I think it's actually a vacuum. There is no content that I know of um, that's like that. So um, I'm really excited about that as well. So keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you're right. There is a huge vacuum. And I think, um, there's a lot of demand. So I, I think we've seen this in, in the U.S., like with representation in the arts and films and literature. Mm-hmm. And there's so much hunger from like from publishers for like diverse content. Sometimes that diversity is just very like skin deep. Right. It doesn't, it's, it's like you have all like the same like Western values and culture and everything, but you just have people of different um, right. you know biological backgrounds, which isn't the same thing. But there are people from other communities like who are really actively pushing for this because representation like does matter. And I didn't realize how much it matters until I started seeing more like movies and shows where you have like minorities, like as lead roles, or you can have like a woman being like the the lead role. And I was like, wow, that's really powerful and shaping how we think about ourselves. Um, So I think it's something we owe to ourselves as a, as a community and as, as as a culture to put ourselves out there because it matters for our, our children and making them feel, you know, like empowered and, and, and things like that. So I think, and to your point, which is like a much better job because the ones that are there are so terrible. Like they're, they're more anti us. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> by, by Indian. It's, it's, it's terrible. Um, and I think also just seeing ourselves as part of the American fabric, like it doesn't have to be just about an Indian immigrant experience or the children of immigrants. It can be, um, us living a very American life, but mm-hmm. karmically, and, and what can that look like? And I think we have to lay those possibilities out so people don't feel like there's this false choice between being American or being Hindu. Right. And I think we do a lot of that intellectually, but again, I think storytelling is, is very important and the arts and all of that. And I think we need to tap into that more. 
that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.